0: keeping up with the research and then applying it to your clinical practice is hard. That's where we come in. I'm Sarah Cavallaro. And I'm Mim Rodda, and we are
1: paediatric OTs who, through this Research and Reality podcast, aim to help you better examine the research and then interpret that into the practicalities of reality for the
0: families you work with. So join us for the adventure. Adventure! (laughs) (laughs) Today, we are talking about an article called Occupational Therapy Interventions to Support Feeding and Toileting in Children from Birth to Age 5 Years. And the author is Associate Professor Meredith. Gronski and we found it in the American Journal of Occupational Therapy printed last year August the 16th last year 2021.
1: And this is going with our theme for this term of feeding and as we if you listen to our introduction episode um, you'll hear that each term will try to have a theme at the end of the term we'll have a guest speaker you talked about the name Meredith she is from North
0: Carolina, USA. She's the founding program director and the assistant professor of OT at the Methodist University, which is in North Carolina. She's got an academic position, but she also conducts early childhood eligibility evaluations for Cumberland County schools. And I don't know the ins and outs of the way that that the US works their early intervention, but I know that they have a system, I guess, similar to kind of our NDIS ECEI program called Early Start, where kids who get a standardised score on an assessment that's below a certain percentile rank are eligible for some sort of government funded early intervention. So it sounds as though she does some assessments for that as well.
1: She is in an academic position. She has a clinical background, and I think that mm. comes out quite strong, strongly in this article. It does, as well. yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now, when we were both researching the impact factor of this journal, uh, I believe we got different numbers. We did. I just- I just Googled it and got 2.23. Yes.
0: <sighs> and and I have since, I've done some learning myself today about journal impact factors. And I have since learned that the journal will have a different impact factor every year.
1: And you know what? That's probably a good question so for a new, if you're new to the podcast, we'll just have a short section and we ask her a key question, often relating to the article that we've reviewed or a general question that will yep. help us all get a bit more of an understanding of research yep. and get our heads around some of these terms the idea is that we're presenting this information to you as clinicians as fairly newbies in your ballpark yeah to that. back to mm. the articles one of the things we ask is what the clinical question that's right was
0: meredith is aiming to give us a practical application of best practice in resolving feeding and toileting issues in a young child and it's a case report of a little person receiving early intervention services and it outlines the ot assessment and intervention processes for supporting this child's activities of daily living in the home and early childhood education setting this is a case study
1: and when you look the hierarchy of evidence case studies are sort of quite low like expert yes. opinion is the lower yes. one below that but then case studies is next but what is really interesting about this is that it's a case study but meredith describes it as an evidence connection article which yes. i haven't come across that term before beautiful. Yes. they've looked at some systematic reviews that were published in march or april 22 the year 2020 before. Issue, yep 2020 yep the american journal of ot and then she's applied those things to That's an actual right. case study
0: it's interesting in my mind there was no information about whether this was a real or an imagined case study which i thought was really interesting and i i kind of read it and then i thought oh did i miss it did i miss whether it was real or imagined and so i kind of went back and had another look and i couldn't figure it out so i don't know i guess You know, that's one of my comments about this article is I'm not sure whether it's based on a real little person and a real therapist or whether it's a hypothetical case study that's pulling the evidence in.
1: Yes, I know what you're saying as in she's giving an example. Like, My reading of it is that it's real because of the detail. She was very specific, yeah. But at the same time, exactly as you say, when you want to give an example – case study you would give just as much detail
0: another question the theoretical background or understanding of the problem they talk about the background of feeding difficulties and toileting difficulties i guess we should probably put it out there that yes this article does combine feeding and toileting issues in one article, which makes sense because a lot of time kids will have difficulties with both. A lot of time, Mm. picky eaters can either lead to constipation or they just have toileting issues in conjunction with that. And we can kind of bundle it under that ADL category. And even from
1: that sensory point of view like you there Mm. there can be some correlations between not liking sensations coming into your body and not liking sensations going out of your
0: tactile sensitive (laughs) and olfactory sensitive then feeding and toileting absolutely affect both of those things don't they right? Yes yeah. Um, So they talk about the fact that in the research that there's 20 to 30% of infants and toddlers have feeding related problems and that these rates are as high as 50% in children with developmental conditions such as ASD. Probably in my clinical experience, I would put feeding difficulties maybe higher than 50% in children with developmental delay or autism, certainly on my current caseload. Yeah, it would absolutely be more than 50% of kids that would have some impact of a limited diet.
1: Yeah, I thought it was interesting that 20 to 30% of infants and typically toddlers. yes yes yeah of the general population yeah anyway, and I suppose yeah. again from even just from parenting so again you know in yes so we both yes. got kids even yes. parenting it is often a topic that you talk oh, about in mom's group like absolutely. oh they won't eat this and I'm trying to get them to eat this so even though the number surprised me just
0: reflecting now I'm like actually we all stress about yeah and I our think
1: children's you yeah, know that
0: that stat is for infants and toddlers but you know my girls are 12 and nine and in my friendship group it would still be a topic of conversation around food and what kids will and won't eat and anybody's got tips for family meals and you know all of that sort of stuff so those stats are great and we can probably I think it's safe to say that those stats are fairly conservative because it's a case study it's just a sample size of one And it's a little guy who at the time of the case study was two years and nine months, so 33 months old. And he's got a history of frequent ear infections resolved with grommets. Looks like he was born a touch early at 36 weeks and he's got a supportive family. Mum and dad both work full time. He's a bit of a vestibular seeker and differences with oral processing and touch processing on the sensory profile. So he was referred to early intervention for speech and language delays at 15 months and they kind of came good once he got his grommets in and then it came out. It says here that he primarily eats crunchy fruit foods, but will also eat strawberries, apple sauce, and certain brands of French fries.
1: What I liked about the referral system was yeah. he came in yep. for speech and language but then obviously it's a multidisciplinary team that's right and when the parents said hey we're actually concerned about some of his feeding we're yes. concerned about some of the toileting yes then the OT could get involved
0: as yep. well so I Absolutely. thought that was lovely. Yeah one of the concerns that his parents had is that they're giving him a separate meal of just his accepted foods and eat their own meal later and he also has some behaviors that at the dinner table. So he gets up from the table frequently, he throws food and gags on those unfamiliar foods, which again, you know, it's a fairly typical presentation in my mind of a little guy at that age that we would see maybe come for therapy
1: and so then they did com- they did use a number of assessments the occupational therapist in the early intervention team so the sensory po- profile the miller yep. function and participation scales the behavioral paediatrics feeding assessment scale parenting stress index two of those are familiar to me two of them aren't and maybe in the facebook group we can discuss a mm. bit more some of those assessments because i think it's good to delve into some of the pros and cons of some of those assessments but just for yep. now it's good to know what i really liked about the therapy the actual intervention presented is that they really did get into the home environment and so they actually went into the parents place at dinner time and observed them at mealtime and Mm -hmm. gave at that dinner time which stressful period Mm. um, and gave them strategies there and then they went into the daycare center with the teaching assistant and gave them strategies there
0: the other thing i really liked about the therapy is the really strong focus on caregiver education and coaching at no point in the article did they talk about the therapist doing anything with the child the interventions that they used were caregiver education, you know, um, coaching around problem behaviors about of, of mealtime, encouraging the educators to use peer modeling and caregiver education, and I think that that's a real emerging role for OT, and it's showing us that that's where the evidence is, which mm. I think is great. I'm familiar with the coaching approach of OPC, which is Occupational Performance Coaching, and that's Fiona Graham's work. She uses a fairly standardised structure. So at the end of the session, you help parents set a target, you explore their options for strategies to achieve the goal, and then you document really specifically what those strategies look like within the context of daily and weekly routines. To me, that's a really typical kind of, occupational performance coaching structure and it seems as though they use that and they've actually cited fiona graham a couple of times i noticed in the article
1: there is nothing wrong with the traditional type of, well we might find in the research there is but sometimes you do need specific teaching to the children but this concept of and it has always been occupational therapy this whole idea making it part of our the the child's occupation or the parent's occupation actually making it part of their routine and not trying to overload them with more things to do yeah but trying to attach it to things that they already do um so yeah
0: and i think using Um, you know, with us using a questioning approach with parents, we all know when you're the one that comes up with the idea, you're more likely to do it, aren't you? There's studies of babies learning to walk. And when a parent holds their hand and stands them up and helps them to walk, there's not as many neurons firing as when a baby pulls themselves to stand and weight shifts along a couch. We know that when you come up with the idea and you are driven to do that, you get more neurons firing in your brain. And if we apply that to adult learning, if we're using a really careful coaching approach where we're supporting caregivers to come up with the strategies themselves, then not only are they more likely to do do that, but I think they're more likely to remember the strategies and for those strategies to be laid down neuronally. And-
1: tailor those strategy, strategies specifically to their child. They Exactly yeah. as you say, they, yeah. they're the expert in their That's child. Right. And yeah. I know we're focusing on feeding, but in the toileting section, I'm sure they were talking about one of the strategies was a sort of reward app that used one of his favourite cartoon yes. characters. So even though we are concentrating on the feeding side, that jumped out at me as well, yeah. going, hey, they actually, whether, whether that was a combination of the parents, yeah. the therapist or, or whatever, like yeah. they did find something that was really specific to him. And
0: it's child centered right i've just copied and pasted a little bit straight out of the article mim because i just thought it really gave a nice summary of the systematic review that this is based on so their intervention is based on strong evidence for parent behavioral training programs to decrease parental stress and undesired mealtime behaviors Strong evidence for repeated exposure feeding approaches to increase food acceptance, which is like our kind of what our SOS approach is. Mm-hmm. Moderate evidence for parent coaching regarding non punitive toilet training language use to reduce toileting refusal and moderate evidence for family-centered routine-based interventions to improve parenting behavior satisfaction and well-being. So I imagine that was probably the summary of the systematic review that was done the year before in 2020 and that's the kind of what they've used, the evidence that they've used to design their therapy approach.
1: And yeah and that's what I love about this article again they've sometimes a systematic review can feel a little bit overwhelming but they've said okay we've taken the systematic review and this is what we've taken out of it and That's you can right. link exactly the strategies yes. that they suggest yes. to
0: that yeah, exactly. those evidence yes yeah. That makes it so practical and and so easy right I'm I'm a really visual person and so one of the things I like to do in my own practice is to print out things like exactly like that yeah things that I've just said and I stick them up I've got a notice board in my therapy room and I stick them up because when they're there all the time it helps me one it helps me plan my therapy sessions but more importantly it helps me to to help parents understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yes. And if I can say to them, there's strong clinical evidence for this, it helps us build the relationship, but it also helps them understand and make the connection between what I'm doing with them and what we want for their child or the goals for the child. The goals. Owen's parents
1: identified
0: three areas of
1: priorities the independence in toileting routine and consistent daytime continence which we won't be covering too much the expansion of the variety of foods accepted at mealtimes and reduction in the frequency of disruptive behaviors during Mm -hmm. meals uh, and increasing parental competence with behavior modifications um, and fading assistance during daily living tasks so again that can apply to the feeding and the toilet toileting. Mm-hmm. um and so then they came up with some goals from some ot some therapy goals yeah so the first one was about um the toileting we will know he has accomplished this when he pats his diaper like he needs to actually indicate going to the toilet but i'll go on to the mealtime one so he'll participate in meals by eating foods that have a combination of textures without disrupting the meal it says we will know he has accomplished this when he ate, eats 3 portions of food with a combination of textures and does not throw food or get up from the table for 1 week.
0: It's a pretty lofty goal. <laughs> I know. I was thinking it's interesting because they do quote Satter Ellen is it Ellen Ellen Satter, the division of responsibility. Yes,
1: Ellen yep. Satter. Yep. I I suppose that's still a good goal to have, but I sort of feel like it goes a little bit against Like it's being very specific about how much food he has.
0: And I guess for me, the lofty part of it is not getting up from the table. Yes. (laughs) Because I know that my nine-year-old little movement vestibular sensory seeker would absolutely struggle to do that in a week. That, you know, they've got that he will not get up from the table for one whole week. Yeah, I just think, wow.
1: Sort of back to our question about whether they've sort of just put some details into this case study hmm. or it is mm. a real case study is mm. we actually don't know if they achieved achieve the goals
0: no so I was no. a bit disappointed
1: on that. like I'm like oh you got into their
0: house and you yes. got into their daycare center and what, what happened,
1: happened? Yeah. and <laughs> Did he
0: achieve yeah. those goals? Yeah. yeah, 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 we don't know.
1: Yeah. so yeah, that was what I was a little bit disappointed in that in the article. I was like turned to the, I'm like, oh, references now. Where is <laughs> yeah where, where yeah. is the success or the the at like or the altering mm. of those? and mm. even in that parent modeling, mm. showing parents that, hey, we might have a, a, aimed for this for one week and it hasn't happened. That's not a failure. Yeah. Let's extend
0: it. Let's try and work out something yes. because yes, yeah, they're a sensory yes. seeker. They need something, and that naturally happens in a, when you're using a coaching approach because yes. you're reviewing the strategies from last week. That's the first thing you do in your next session is review, review them. Did it work? Did it not? Why? Why not? You know, you can kind of branch off from there. I just thought it was a very, <laughs> it was a very lofty goal, really, isn't it? You know, like it's a yeah. big ask for a two years, nine months to manage yeah. that. The um, next goal they yeah, had was that his mum and dad will successfully manage the morning routine by offering minimal assistance and allowing Owen to practice his daily living skills without getting frustrated. We will know they accomplished this when they are able to use a behavioural modification or faded queuing strategy successfully five times in a week. I would think if we're looking at the semantics of that, offering minimal assistance in a morning routine again is probably a pretty lofty goal for a 2 years 9 months i would say my 12 year old still needs moderate assistance to manage her morning routine <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, you know i love it that they've got one of the goals is that the parents won't get frustrated In my experience, intervention for parents to help them manage their own emotional regulation can sometimes require a little bit more than just caregiver coaching and education. You know, sometimes you have to look at Parenting styles and attachment styles and yes. all of that. Yes, and stuff. that's what and I was
1: going to say as well. Like maybe this is, one, they are sometimes to do have high expectations,
0: not, don't you? Yes, yes, absolutely. But
1: like yeah. not not giving him some of that freedom, and so maybe the OT has recognised that and is trying to say, hey, let him experiment with some of these things on his own Exactly,
0: we don't Um, have the context for that Yeah. yeah
1: so then the next question are is are these results applicable to clinical practice i think what is applicable is that idea of being able to take like this is the perfect example of being able to take evidence and then apply it to a specific case study Mm. and it was actually really lovely like again the summary of the credibility of the data that was really helpful yes to see them yeah
0: absolutely yeah I agree especially the focus on the parent coaching and you know the caregiver education I think that's really lovely I think that's emerging evidence Um, and certainly you know in my practice it's been a real shift in the way that I do things and particularly the way that I explain therapy to parents when they come on board. And when I have new clients that join my practice, the first thing I say to them is that, A lot of these, a lot of our sessions will be done without your child um, because Hmm. my work is with you and the family as much as it is with the child. And so I educate people on parent coaching straight away and talk about the importance of having sessions without the child there so that we can problem solve exactly like they're talking about in this article. I really loved, exactly as you said before, Mim, I really loved the fact that they the therapists were able to go into the home and, you know, she was able to go in the early evening and meal times happening. I know that's not always um. very practical. <laughs> I'm just thinking about most private practitioners are really overworked and stretched mm. for time. It is my experience that ringing up a private practice and asking for an early evening home visiting time slot is like finding a piece of gold in my backyard. (laughs) I'm not sure that that it's going to happen. That's really nice in theory, but I think we just need to be creative about the ways that we- Well,
1: I wondered, just as you were talking about that, I wondered whether, like, again, we have lots of modern technology, videoing. Meal yeah, yeah, session. yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and then that's what I get families to do to a all session. the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I even get families to do that. You know, obviously we don't want to cause... The child any harm or embarrass the child but some fa- some families like to video their child's some of their behaviors because it helps give me an example of what they're doing and how they're dealing with it as well
1: that's an option when uh, in the ideal world it would be lovely just to saunter into somebody's home yes. and say yep we'll be oh, there dinner time right. yes but interestingly dinner- sometimes someone having someone else in the home may actually not always show you a real
0: of course yeah scenario of course, either. that's right. and so yeah,
1: maybe yeah. the video idea is a, a better idea
0: There's <laughs> one more thing I really liked the way that when they phrased their goals they wrote we will yes. know they've accomplished this and I guess in my mind it's got me thinking for NDIS you know, we have to comment on children's goals as it relates to their NDIS plan. And I often do a goal setting and intervention plan with families. And I'm wondering whether I might add an extra little column in that about how we will know when they've achieved that. Yes, I think it's really nice. And, you know, we just talked about maybe some of their expectations maybe being not realistic. I think the process is good. I think the idea is good. I think it's nice for parents too to be able to manage expectations because if the parent wants the child to not get up from the table for a week, then we can have conversations about whether that's realistic or not. Yes, Um,
1: for a two-year, nine-month-old.
0: Yes, that's right. (laughs) Who's a sensory seeker. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So probably that's the other thing that I would add into, you know, Things that I might change in my current practice after reading Mm. this article.
1: And I was just going to say, in the conclusion as well, just some of the terms they use, which are lovely to see, sort of familiar terms like. Reinforcement, chaining, shaping, exposure strategies to improve some of that mealtime success and that parent confidence as well. Forwards and backwards chaining and
0: yes, all that lovely stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I'm I'm hoping that people will talk a little bit about the division of responsibility. Yeah. Uh, I know that's a real passion for her. And so hopefully when we do the session with her at the end of this term.
0: You know, a lot of the emerging psychology and parent parenting, gentle parenting literature, there's a really strong strong move away from behavioral approaches and reward systems. And yet it still seems to be the basis for a lot of our feeding therapy evidence. And I don't, you know, I'll be honest, I don't do a lot of feeding therapy in my clinical practice. I don't love it. So I don't take on clients primarily for feeding therapy. If I've got an existing client, who needs a bit of feeding, I will do it as one aspect of our therapy process or or do some coaching around it. So I guess I'm just interested in Pippa's take on the move for or or away from behavioural approaches and how she manages that in her practice.
1: I think that will be good. And like I think the only other thing that I realised in our little note that I didn't write down was just what I want more like what I'd like to, I'd be interested in knowing more about. I'd like to know the results if Owen, if he is real, if Owen really did that, but it actually makes me want to go and read that systematic review as well. I agree. So I think both there was, it was the systematic review and it was the occupational therapy, the American OTA's occupational therapy practice guidelines for early childhood birth to five years. Yes. I think that that would be Good to have a look at as well. So maybe we might have some time to, <laughs> with all the time oh, that we look, have, but some time to look at that. Never ending is that it? That so many things that we can we
0: can look at over. And the hard
1: thing the is that bit. you read an article like this and you're like, yeah, I enjoyed that article, and then you're like, oh, they refer to that article.
0: Yeah, oh, maybe I'll have it's a look at like that. Like a and rabbit Warren, isn't it? Yes,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's completely crazy. Yeah. Well, I think that concludes this session, and we it will does. see you in a
0: fortnight. And and please let us know what you thought of the article or maybe what your implications for clinical practice are. Or if you've got any questions for Pippa, flick them our way. The Facebook page is live. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And you can send us your questions for Pippa.
1: It's time for our Ask A New section where we ask Dr. Anu Bopti from Monash University a research question to generally expand our knowledge. Welcome Dr Anu to our first section of Ask Anu. With this first one we were just going to ask the very basic question of what is quantitative and what is qualitative research. So I know a number of our listeners may already be aware of this but it's always just good to
2: start with the basics so we know we're all working on the same baseline. So I'll just start by saying that qual. And pardon if I say qual and quant. So qualitative and quantitative approaches actually should not be viewed as polar opposites. Instead, they actually represent different ends of like on a continuum, according to me. So sometimes a study can be more quantitative or more qualitative or vice versa. So depending on what is it that we're trying to find in this study, what are we after you choose your design so generally the qualitative research we say is a means of exploring and understanding meanings of things or what or individuals perspectives or group perspectives on on certain social or human problems process involves questions procedures and data usually we will be collected in particular setting, in a particular style, there will be either interviews or focus groups. It, there will be a system. So both are very rigorous. So mm-hmm. it's not that just because it's qualitative, it's not rigorous. We do have to follow a lot of rigor when we when we conduct qualitative research. So we have to provide details. We, of course, have to get for all kinds of research. You have to get proved and see that you do things ethically. In qualitative re- research, You will mainly report on detail to help your rigor of your study. So everyone who's replicating your study needs to know what you did. So in case they want to do a similar thing, Mm -hmm. it's really clear. So that's the purpose of reporting lots of data in your method sections of your um, papers or manuscripts or when you design a study. So you got to give detail of that. You have to give details of how are you going to analyze this data? How are you going to firstly collect it in a really good way that is um, rigorous? And, you know, oftentimes people think it's a lot of bias in qualitative studies, but, you know, there could be an equal bias in a quantitative study, for example. So in a qual study, it's really important to understand how will you minimize all the bias or you -hmm. know your own viewpoint of the researcher how do you report that and how will you analyze this lots and lots of interview data or focus data so all that will be reported in the paper when you read it that how did they analyze did they do it you know deduct it or did they do coding or did they make themes and things like that so there is a process which is well defined And needs to be used and needs to be reported in the paper that this is what we did and that that should really lead you as a reader to say oh yes looks like this this researcher did really sound qualitative research. And that, and and to make it more meaningful, how many participants did they use? So we always talk about the sample, we always talk about numbers, but we always talk about consistency in the questions that were asked. In a QUAL study, very often you will have a very good plan, but then the participant says something and the plan <laughs> changes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so that is actually absolutely a wonderful thing in QUAL research is because you want to capture that, but sometimes... At the end, so you've captured all of that in your interview and you sit down and you think about or oh, these were all wonderful things, but they're actually not relevant to your question. So you have to not take everything when you write a paper. So those are real processes, and that's why you need two people. You you just can't have me a new going on her merry way collecting qualitative data. If I don't report that I had another coder or I had another reviewer to review my codes or my themes, then it can be questioned that why 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 it's so your own bias can come in your study. Plus, it's really about reporting what is it that the, the participant wants it's their point of view and it's a contextual understanding and it gives you rich and deep data a lot of times there will be in em- theories will emerge out of qualitative research so that you know I'm trying to study perspectives but out of that I come up with a theory now the difference in quantitative research is that it's everybody knows it's all about numbers. So I'm not going to say that's the obvious difference, but yeah, it is about numbers, but it starts with the researchers question, which so a the researchers point of view. So even qual may, but at the end, we consider what is it that the participant is saying? So in a quant research, There will be numbers, there will be, but what you do is you're kind of testing theories. So you know how I was saying in qual, you might come up with a theory at the end, but in a quant, you have a theory or a method or a tool or a phenomenon you want to know or your intervention, you want to know where, whether that works or you know mm, that's interesting you,
1: the difference at the beginning yes. and end. so you yeah. want
2: to test out whether it works so there'll be a number of variables for example family quality of life like that was my study right so mm-hmm. that that is one variable now I want to know whether If uh, if a parent, if a family has a child with autism, is it different to when a family has a child with cerebral palsy? Or is it different when the child has a rare genetic disorder? So these are a number of variables that I use. And then I know that the phenomenon I'm studying or interested in is quality of life. So I will find a tool and I can already see how. I am going towards a quantitative study method because I want to know whether the impact of having a diagnosis, what is the impact of having an autism versus CP versus uh, developmental disability diagnosis on quality of life. So I want to study a relationship, but I'm not creating a new theory here. But if I want to know what are the parents perspectives of having a child with autism, what are the parents perspectives of when I had a child a new diagnosis, what happened to my quality of life then I'm lending myself to uh, I have to interview a few parents, I have to do a focus group so see how your question leads you to the type of design and yes here you argue. That, hey, maybe you can use both because, you know, maybe you can, you know, get lots of quantitative data from 100 participants and then interview 20 participants and then we can see what happens. So that was going to be my next question. So there
1: are times when using uh, a bit of both can be effective and we would come across some of that in some of the articles we review.
2: Yes, yes. And so it's not like a bit of both. It has to have a real good plan before you even start the study. So that is really important. It's never a second thought. Sometimes it is, but you know, it's always a good study will always be a well-planned study right at the outset. So you, Mm -hmm. you have a very clear question because you might be a researcher really interested in i really want to find about meal times and if if a parent say for example we're doing this section on meal times i want to find out what are some of the strategies that help parents in feeding a child who has feeding difficulties then you will kind of think what kind of a what am i going to find out and you'll think that it's easy i can just do a survey or i can just do but once you sit down and try and plan it rigorously then you will know Yes, by the end of that, before you start your data collection, don't even go there, okay? Till you have a really good design. You know, that is the hardest part is designing the study. Carrying out the study gets better if your design is really really good so we encourage that when you read a paper look at the design like you know what did they actually do there might be only two participants but maybe they did a really good rigorous study or there might be hundreds and they haven't really done a rigorous study so these are ways to understand what what is this paper that you're reading how did they collect the data was it a qual what is it a quant or was it a mixed methods thank you Anu for helping us clarify some of the different between qualitative
1: and quantitative research and we will talk to you again and delve into more deeply
0: some of the designs common designs in qualitative and quantitative we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout australia and their connections to land sea and community we pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples today we're
1: excited to announce the date of our first live podcast in which you can join us. This will involve us interviewing Pippa Van Wyck, a paediatric occupational therapist, and she has extensive experience and passion in the area of feeding, and she picked one of our research articles this term. Pippa will share insights into her work as a feeding therapist and help us understand how her article of choice has shaped her clinical work. We're holding the podcast recording on Wednesday, the seventh of September, 2022, at 8 p.m. Brisbane time. And we'd love you to submit your clinical questions beforehand so that we can send them on to Pippa. And you can do that by emailing us at research and reality at exceptional net. So that's research A-N-D reality at exceptional hyphenkids.net. And you will have the opportunity to ask questions on the night. But if you can send the questions, that means people will be able to prepare and answer those questions more thoroughly. So remember that this is a complimentary invitation for our listeners out there who have listened and supported us for the first term of our podcast. So thank you and tell others about the opportunity. If you can't make it on that particular evening, a recording will be released on the podcast. So don't worry, you will not miss out. Details of signing up for that are available in our show notes and on both our Facebook page and Facebook group. Our second announcement is that Pippa Van Wyk and her colleague, speech pathologist Carly Betts, are holding a two-day introduction to feeding basics assessment and intervention workshop on Friday the 2nd of September and Saturday the 3rd of September. Again, a link to that workshop is available on our show notes and through our Facebook page and group. I know it's very short notice, so get in there because that will be a great opportunity if you live in Brisbane. Unfortunately, it's based in Brisbane. We love providing this podcast to you free to enable you to put great research into reality for your families. We would love to engage with our listeners more, and if possible, have you support our podcast. There's a number of ways you can do this. One, tell your friends and colleagues about us. We are aimed at occupational therapists, but some of our topics are certainly relevant for other professions as well. Two, rate and review us on your podcast app. This helps others find the podcast. Three, Email us, if you like, at reality, that's R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y at exceptional-kids.net. Check out our Facebook page where you'll be kept up to date with all our news, www.facebook.com slash researchandrealityOT. That's researchandrealityOT. You can also become a Patreon supporter from as little as a dollar a month. This podcast takes time, so if you'd like to support us, you can. When you support us through Patreon, you get extra perks as well. For a dollar a month, you get to be a research rookie and get access to our closed Facebook group. It's different from the page, as the group allows you to interact with ourselves and each other to share about articles that we review and much more. For $10 a month, you get to be a research roadie and you get access to the closed Facebook group get a blank critique form and a copy of the article in advance, if copyright permits, and a transcript of our podcast so you don't have to frantically take notes while listening. You'll also get access to our bonus episode each term where we interview an expert in that term's topic who has picked one of the articles. And for $15 a month, you are a research rock star and you get the benefits of the research rookie and research roadie, but you don't just get a recording of the bonus episode, you get to be part of it live and post your questions to our expert in real time. You can sign up through Patreon by going to patreon.com researchandrealityot.com. That's researchandrealityot.com. So there's heaps of ways to get involved, support us, and engage with the Research and Reality podcast more. As our first supporters, we'd like to thank you for listening and give you the Research Rockstar Perks for free. Just email us your details and you get all the Research Rockstar Perks for free the rest of this year, that's 2022, including being part of our bonus episode on the OT role in feeding therapy with Pippa Van White. After this term, though, we'll be making the Facebook group a closed group, so get in quick. And feel free to still financially support us via Patreon for the rest of this year if you wish.